Are you a service-based business owner looking to increase profits to fund your lifestyle? Well, this podcast is for you. We bring you inspirational guests sharing actionable tips to solve many of the struggles you face each and every day. And now, over to your host, Paul Higgins. Welcome to the Build, Live, Give podcast. If you're a first-time listener, and if you love the show, please subscribe. And also, welcome. If you're a regular, love to hear your feedback. Just go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash questions. Now, this show is packed with value, so you can take notes by all means, but it will be fully transcribed as well. So our guest today started their corporate career with Xerox, had an amazing promotion in early on, but she quickly realized that even though she was one of the best closers, that was a nickname in the company's history, she knew she wanted to help others and most importantly, work for herself. So that's what she did. And she went out and helped people buy, yeah, it's buy, fix and sell businesses. And she's going to give you two incredible pieces of value today. One is the six P's methodology that's in her book, Exit Rich. And the second is the GPSX model. She just gives so much value here. It's incredible. So please get ready for this. So what I'll do is now hand you over to Michelle Siler-Tucker. Welcome, Michelle Siler-Tucker, to the (laughs) Build, Live, Give podcast. Great to have you here, Michelle. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, now I know it's pretty hot in your office over there and I know you're going to drop (laughs) lots of brilliant tips for us because uh, I did have an exit of a business, so I'm very intrigued and I know a lot of my clients want to have exits of businesses, so you're the perfect person to have on. But why don't we kick off with something that your family or friends know about you that we may not? Probably that I love to write. I love to write. I love to write poetry. I love to write songs. I like to write lyrics. I'm actually really creative. And I just love writing. I've always written like short stories, different lyrics. You know, I don't write music, but I write lyrics and I write songs and things of that nature. Great. And do you also perform or is it just the writing part? No, you don't want me performing. (laughs) (laughs) I stick to what I know, (laughs) which is writing and selling. (laughs) I stick to buying, selling, fixing, growing companies. That's my core competencies. Great. Well, I'm sure my wife never listens to my podcast, but uh, she is probably one of the worst, worst singers in the world. And and I say that to people and they go, no, nah, she can't be that bad. And then she sings. And they're like, oh, my God. So <laughs> you got to be better than her. And uh, now I must admit, you know, I did my research, but I went through uh, some of your Facebook photos and you got to tell us, how do you know so many celebrities? You seem to be either brilliant at Photoshopping or you know lots and lots of celebrities. <laughs> no, I think that's again, you know, I don't know if that's legal to Photoshop yourself with somebody that you've never been with. Is that even legal? I don't even it's know not, but that wouldn't stop others doing it. <laughs> well, I would never do that. I don't do things that are not legal. <laughs> so I've spoken on a bunch of stages. So I've shared the stages with many different celebrities and I've had dinner with them and you know, and like Trump is there and I've been in their Trump helicopter. I was in friends with Eric Trump. Plus I've been at Celebrity Apprentice where I got to meet Mr. Donald Trump. Used to be President Trump. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> to some Americans, he still is. <laughs> but yeah, that's how I meet celebrities. I've just networked a lot and I've spoken a lot of different stages, shared a lot of different stages. Great. Well, look, I think you worked for someone else for 21 years. Is that right? No. No? Okay. No. I've never worked for anyone for 21 years. <laughs> uh, I thought yeah. your uh, capital business solutions, was that your business? That was my business. Well, there you go. I did yeah. too much research on celebrities and not enough on your business part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've only worked for somebody for maybe a year. You know, I've always been an entrepreneur. I've owned many different businesses. I did kind of get caught up with corporate America. I went to, I was recruited by Xerox. So I went to work for Xerox and I was there for about six months and my nickname became the closer because every time they couldn't close a deal, they're like, bring her in, bring Michelle in. She can close it. She can close anything. About six months, my supervisor also came to me, my manager, and she said, Michelle, you really should interview for the regional vice president position. She says, you've only been here for six months and Xerox typically only promotes. She goes, you'll never get it because you've only been here for six months and Xerox promotes after you've been here for two years and you're up against people who have been here for, you know, five, 10, 15 years. And I said, well, why would I interview for something I'm never going to get? And because she said, it's a grueling process. It's a three-month process. And she said, because you'll learn so much during that experience because, you know, everybody knows Xerox has the best training in the world, Right. So I said, okay, I'll do it. I'll throw my hat in. And I did that. And it was a three-month grueling process with all high-level executives. Well, I had to do Q&A and ask them all these questions and, you know, find out what their hot buttons were, what their sweet spots were, what they wanted, needed, et cetera. And then I had to do a presentation. Then I had to do a demonstration. And then they did a Q&A with me and asked me like a thousand questions. And I ended up getting it. So I ended up beating everybody that had been there for many years and was promoted to high-level vice president of the region. Brilliant. And how long did it last? Not long because I didn't like it. (laughs) 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 And, you know, that's the thing I always tell business owners. Never promote your top salesperson. If you have a salesperson that you call the closer, you keep the closer. You don't want to get rid of the closer. You don't want to promote the closer. You want to keep your closer. So I got promoted and very quickly I learned how different it was. I like management. I don't like management in Fortune 500. I like management in smaller companies where I can actually make decisions and where I can get stuff accomplished. Fortune 500 companies, you're like having a meeting to have another meeting to schedule a follow-up meeting and then have another meeting to discuss the follow-up meeting. And it's just so frustrating because there's so much bureaucracy and, and red tape and you can't ever get anything done. And I'm a doer. (laughs) I'm a problem solver. I'm a salesperson through and through. And I like, you know, solving, I like finding out what the problems are. I like solving problems. I like, you know, I like coming up with solutions and I like building lifetime relationships with my clients. And you don't do that in management. In management, you're over all the employees. I was over 95 salespeople, 85 to 95 salespeople, plus the upper level management. You know, and the salespeople, (laughs) it's like, it's like hurting cats. It's like, you know, it's like running a daycare. (laughs) Yeah, well, I get you because I should have done what you did, but I didn't. I lasted 18 years. And I think it's because I just got promoted every two years, but I worked at Coca-Cola. Well, that's uh, what would have happened to me, they said. I I was on the corporate fast track and I was going to move up the corporate ladder very quickly. But I miss entrepreneurship so much. Um, that I told my husband, I said, I'm going to look for a business that I can, you know, buy 
and just run on the side. I mean, I was still going to keep my six figures with my great benefits at Xerox. So I stumbled across a franchise. My husband actually knew the owner. They only had two locations. So I said, look, I want to buy a location. And they go, no, we know of you. We know of your reputation. We want you to partner with us and we'll give you a franchise. And I said, well, hold on a minute. I don't think I'm going to leave my six-figure position for a company that sold two franchises. <laughs> I said, but I'll tell you what I will do. I'll keep my day job at Xerox. I'll try it out for six months and see you know, how it goes. And I did that. And within six months, I sold so many franchises. I made more in six months than I made an entire year at Xerox. So then it was time to go. So I was at Xerox for one year. <laughs> great, great story. And, yeah. and the closer, right? So all your and the closer. colleagues call you the closer. So what's changed about closing back then to now, if anything? Well, I think, you know, maybe it depends on what you're selling, but I don't think that there's a lot that has changed. People ask me all the time, why were you able to close so many more deals than other people? Why are you nicknamed the closer? And I think it's mainly because I just ask the right questions and then I shut up. (laughs) So many salespeople just talk their way out of a deal and it's all about them, 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 them. The business owner, you know, the clients don't care about you. They care about what's in it for them, you know? So what's in it for me? That's the channel that they're always tuned into, what's in it for me. And so I always focused on them. I asked them all the questions. I built rapport with them. I figured out what their hot buttons were, you know, what they really wanted, what they needed. And a lot of times they don't even know what they want or need. It's our job to figure it out. And I think, you know, so many salespeople just always want to push their own agenda and they go in with a canned pitch and, you know, it's all about them. Well, it's not. It's all about the client. And if you can't figure that out, you really shouldn't be in sales. So and I think is, that's a big difference. And is this something that's innate for you or is it, your, uh, you know, your upbringing? Like what makes you so great at this? You know, I don't know. Is it innate? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> Maybe some of it is. I've had a lot of sales training as well. And I've been through Dale Carnegie sales training program. And after my first, I was a three, I think it was a three month course. After my first course with them, they asked me to be a trainer for them. And so I became a trainer. I've been through a Xerox sales course. I've been through, you know, many different sales courses, but I think it's a combination of being innate and just really liking people and really being a people person and really wanting to, you know, do the right thing for that person and solve problems. I think yeah. it comes from that. You know, that training is so valuable. Like, you know, Coca-Cola, not a bad sales training company either. And a lot of people I work with say, you know, I find it really difficult to sell. I'm like, okay, but like how much training, how much experience have you actually got? And most of them have come from corporate. They're now running their own business and they've never really had any training. So yeah. you know, it is something that you need to acquire skills. It's not just something that falls in your lap. Like you said, part of it might be innate. So that gives you an advantage, but the rest, you know, you do have to get those skills. And I think it's a mindset too. You know, I think it's a mindset because if you just focus on sell, 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 you know, for people who are not used to sales, that can be daunting. That can be overwhelming. And, you know, a lot of people don't like rejection, you know, and so they're focused on the rejection. They're focused on the nose. They're focused on the stress. They're focused on, oh, I dread doing this. And if you dread something, if you're stressed out about something, if you're, you know, not confident, then you're not going to be good at it. (laughs) So a lot of it's about mindset. You know, it takes five no's to get a yes. It takes five no's to get a yes. So guess what? Every no you give me, I'm that much closer to the yes. (laughs) 
And, you know, people always tell me, God, I'm going to show you, you're so persistent. And then the other thing too is I think sales needs to be, especially for what I sell, because I sell companies, sales needs to be more education than just pushing a product down somebody's throat or pushing some, you know, like a used car salesperson. And I don't really think of myself really as a salesperson now. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm always a salesperson, but I also think of myself as somebody who really educates, really educate business owners what they should be doing, when they should be doing it, how they should be doing it, how they should, you know, build their business to run on the six fees, how they should follow the STGPS exit model that we talk about in Exit Rich. So it's more of an education thing. I get the sellers to see things from the buyer's shoes. I get the buyers to see things from the seller's perspective. So I really think it should be more of an educational sales process, you know, than anything else. Yeah. My mentor in corporate, because I used to buy billion dollar companies for Coca-Cola said, you know, the first thing we'll always do when we're buying a business is look from the seller's perspective. So for the next week, we're going to be sellers. So what's everything we're looking for, you know, personal wins, business wins, et cetera, and then flip it to our side. And uh, I think you're spot on. So why don't we move into that, the build section? So now, when people say, hey, Michelle, you help people exit businesses and on your LinkedIn, I think it says 20 to 40% higher than others or you help them sell their business, you know, what do you say to people? You know, how do you introduce yourself? What do I say to people? How do I introduce myself? Like, what is my elevator pitch? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Like when someone says like you sell at 20, 40, 20 to 40% higher than everyone else. Like how, what's your, what do you know that many other people don't? Well, there's a lot and it's all in this big fat book, <laughs> 350 pages, 325 pages. So what I say, well, first of all, I don't just sell businesses. I specialize in buying, selling, fixing, growing. So yeah. I buy businesses and flip them. I partner with business owners and help them fix the business, grow the business until I build a sale program and then help them sell for their desired sales price. So what do I do differently? Well, there's a lot of things I do differently. First and foremost, I know how to run companies. Many brokers and M&A advisors have never run a business before. So it's kind of hard to tell somebody what to do in a business if you've actually never sat on the other side of the desk and actually dealt with payroll, actually dealt with employees, actually dealt with legal issues, accounting issues, et cetera. If you've never dealt with all that stuff, how can you really advise anybody else? And so a lot of brokers, a lot of advisors have been salespeople, but they've never really owned the business. And I think that's a big difference because I'll look at things from the business owner's perspective and it doesn't matter what the industry is. You know, I evaluate businesses on all what I call the six P's and I help my clients tune up those six P's. They're only functioning on three of the six. Then I want them to get the other three operational and balanced out so that the business is sellable and we can maximize value. So I don't just go in there and say, oh, okay, you want $10 million for your business? Let me write up for $10 million and hope somebody buys it. That's what a lot of other brokers and the advisors do. We don't do that. If I tell you your business is worth you know, $5 million and you say, no, you want 20, that's great. Go see another broker. I'm not your person. So tell so us, I, what are the six Ps? So the six Ps, number one is people. Is people. You don't build a business, you build people and people build a business. And you have to have the right people in the right spot. And you have to ask the who question. Who opens the doors? Who handles customer service? Who handles client issues? Who handles manufacturing, distribution, logistics, environmental, embezzlement? (laughs) You know, the list goes on and on and on. The clue is you should never be next to the who. 
the number one reason that businesses are not sellable is because the business is too dependent on the owner. Yeah. The owner has created a job, not a business. And buyers want to buy a business, not a job. So there's lots of businesses in the U.S. and I'm sure Australia too that are completely dependent upon the owner. Like we have a dentist that just came to us, wants to sell his dental practice. One dentist been in business 40 years, has six dental hygienists. I pulled that dentist out of the business. Is there a business? No. All the patients have been coming to him. Yeah, well, isn't he, if he owns years. the property, he's probably going to get just the real estate value out of the property. Or the purchase price, we could sell it, but he's not going to maximize value. And the purchase price is going to be tied to him staying on for so many years. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of businesses that are dependent upon the owner. Right. So, so we people really, one, what's number two? Well, I want to say one more thing about that. Yeah, sure. The other thing is you got to get a layer of management in there. You got to get a management team. It can't just be the owner managing everybody. Most entrepreneurs do not make good managers. <laughs> Most entrepreneurs don't make great leaders. So you need to focus on your strengths, hire your weaknesses, and get good managers. Number two is product. Product, which is your product, your industry. You need to ask yourself, is your industry product thriving or dying? Do you have an Amazon and you're on top of your game or do you have a blockbuster? And so many industries right now are a blockbuster because of the pandemic. So you really have to look at your industry and find out, is it thriving or dying? If it's dying, you need to ask yourself three transformational questions. Amazon did this back in the 90s. Amazon asked themselves, what business are we in? (laughs) And I said, we're in a book selling business. We sell books. And then the second question was, what do we do really, really well, better than everybody? Oh, we do fulfillment really well. We're the best at fulfillment, the best in the industry. What business should we be in? We should be in fulfillment (laughs) of everything. (laughs) And those three transformational questions is what transformed Amazon to a small bookseller to the multi-billion dollar worldwide conglomerate that they are today. Those are transformational questions. Problem is most owners can't do that because when you're in your fog, it's foggy. (laughs) And you really need an outsider's perspective to see things that you're not clearly seeing. Brilliant. Number three. Number three is processes. Processes are so important your business needs to be systematic. Your business has to run without you and it's going to have all the systems in place, all the processes in place. The problem with processes is most owners don't think about them until they have to because something bad happened. Oh, so, you know, customer complaint and blast it all over the internet. So now they don't have good ratings. Oh, we need a process for that. We need a process for customer service. You really need to design your processes from the beginning, not when something happens. And your processes should be designed with the customer experience in mind. Did you ever watch a movie, The Founder, based upon the McDonald's story? Yes, yes. Great movie, right? Yeah, that car part, all the basketball court was an absolute classic. Tennis court. Tennis, was it? Okay. And that's what we're going to talk about, about process right now. Because back in the 40s, they had the Sonic-type drive-ups, and the food was always cold, the order took so long, and it was... Terrible, you know, and a lot of times they got the order wrong. So the McDonald brothers, not Ray Kroc, Ray Kroc came in after the McDonald's brothers said, we want to start a fast food restaurant. And this is our mission, this is our vision. We want the client experience, the customer experience to be this. We want them to get hot food that tastes great, fast, <laughs> two minutes or less. So what did they do? They took all their employees to the tennis court. Do you remember that? And they took chalk and they drew it all out and they were there all day. They raced it, drew it out again, raced it, drew it out again. They kept bumping into each other. And they finally figured out 
Who takes the order? Who toasts the buns? Who cooks the burgers? Who puts the pickles on the bun and gives it to the client in two minutes or less? Those processes that they designed 40, you know, back in 1940 is why you can eat at a McDonald's in Australia, USA, Russia, anywhere in the world and receive the exact same experience because of the processes. But have you ever noticed that when you try to do business with a company and you're like, oh my God, it's the worst customer service. This is the worst process ever. And the processes are designed the opposite. It's designed to infuriate you, not create a happy client. Processes need to be designed to create happy clients. Happy clients make more happy clients. Should the owner be the person that's developing the process or should it be someone external that they bring in? What, what have you seen work best? I think it depends. I mean, the McDonald's brothers were the ones that developed the processes, right? But Ray Kroc came in, who's a real visionary, because the McDonald's brothers were a little visionary, but not like Ray Kroc. Ray Kroc was like big, huge picture, right? Yes. And so it depends because sometimes... The owner, the entrepreneur is a big visionary person, but they might need an integrator to come in and help them because big visionaries don't always get things done, (laughs) you know? So it really depends. If there's an owner that's a great visionary and a great integrator, then they might not need somebody else. But I always say that everybody needs a team because there's strength in others, right? And like the McDonald's brothers did it themselves with their own team. But they were only going to have always one location. They had other locations, but they were never successful. So it took the real visionary, which was Ray Kroc, to build it into what it is today. So it just depends upon the entrepreneur. The processes need to be productive, efficient, and well-documented. When buyers buy companies, if one of the first things they're going to do in due diligence is look at your PPP manuals, your policy procedure manuals. They're going to look at your SOP checklist. We're selling a $70 million company right now, and they don't have all their policies and procedures documented. So very important. Number four is proprietary. So number four is the highest value driver. So answering your question earlier, Michelle, how do you get your clients 20 to 40% more for their business than what the business appraises for? This is how I do it. Proprietary. Proprietary are synergies. It's the number one value driver. So I can get you a higher multiple if you have the right synergies, if you have IP. Okay. So there's six pillars to proprietary. Number one is branding. The more well-branded you are, the more money I can sell your business for. As long as your brand is relevant in the mind of the consumer. Does anybody want to pay money for Blockbuster? No. (laughs) No. But Amazon is way up here. Who's the biggest brand in the world? Worth the most amount of money. Do you know? I thought it was Apple, but... You should always go with your first choice. It is Apple. Yeah. (laughs) They're worth $389 billion. I think it's $389 billion just for the brand. That's not for the assets, inventory, EBITDA, anything else, real estate. That's just the brand. So build your brand. The other thing that's valuable is trademarks. Trademark company name, trademark products, trademark slogans, trademarked systems that are unique to you. And one of the biggest mistakes that business owners make in the United States, I don't know about Australia, but they go open up a business. Like let's say they open up a business in California. They go to the state of California and get a trademark for their name, but they never check the federal database to make sure it's available from a federal standpoint. So somebody else could actually have that name. You don't even know it. And a lot of times what happens, and I've seen this happen with my clients, well, they'll be in business for 10 years, all of a sudden receive a cease and desist letter in the mail saying you have to stop using your company name because we have the trademark. So really, everybody needs to go out and spend a $1,500 to $2,000 and get a federal trademark. And if you have slogans, you need to protect that. I got a trademark for Exit Rich. 
I got to train model for the six P's. I got to train model for the GPS exit model. The other thing is like trademark products. We have a retail business that we're selling that has like 12 different trademark products and they're exclusive in different retailers. And then patents, very valuable. Do you guys have Shark Tank in Australia? We do. And what do all the sharks ask all the investors? Yep. Have you have you a patent on that? Patent. Yep. Do you have a patent pending? Do you have a patent? Do you have a utility patent? Go out and patent your um, products. Go out and patent your invention. It will bring you a lot more money. We once sold a business for $18 million that had 18 patents and wasn't making any money. So a million dollars a patent. Also, contracts are extremely valuable. Manufacturing contracts, vendor contracts, distribution contracts, franchisor. Let's say a franchisor has 3,000 contracts with their franchisees. That's very valuable because that means residual revenues. Yes. So the most valuable contracts of all are client contracts. Yes. So if you have a landscaping company, contracts with your, you know, commercial landscaping company, contracts with your clients. If you're residential, contracts with your homeowners. Contracts are so valuable. But here's the caveat. Make sure you have the two-sentence transferability clause. In the United States, 99.9% of all sales are asset sales, not stock sales. Out of the thousands and thousands of business owners I've been working with, none of them have transferability clause in their contracts. So if the buyer chooses not to do an asset as a stock sell, then you can lose that whole deal altogether. If a client doesn't agree to transfer their contracts, you can lose that whole deal altogether. So everybody needs to go get that two-sentence clause. Very important. And then the other one is databases. Databases are huge and typically overlooked because most M&A advisors don't know what to do with them. But if the clients can be repurposed and retargeted, then strategists and competitors will pay a lot of money for that. Facebook paid $19 billion for WhatsApp. And WhatsApp was hemorrhaging money. They're losing money. Crazy. But they had a billion users. That's a synergy that Facebook wanted to purchase. And Facebook knew they could ROI and they could monetize on that $19 billion investment. Build your synergies, build your value. The last pillar in IP is what I call IP real estate. And this is where your product gets celebrity endorsements, whether it's radio endorsements, TV show, I mean, you know, TV commercial endorsements, infomercial endorsements. It could be like you have a skincare line and Oprah Winfrey, who's known around the world, is endorsed your product and uses your product. A competitor who has a similar product would pay a lot of money for that because they want in front of Oprah. The other thing is, let's say you manufacture dining room sets and you're number one on Wayfair. Or you manufacture a a robotic vacuum and you have a patent on that, you've cornered the market on Amazon. And let's say you have a huge, your company has a huge social following. I mean, all of this is IP real estate. The strategists and competitors will pay a lot of money for This is what other advisors and brokers don't look at. Yeah, because of my M&A background, when we had a license with a particular company and I made sure that we got exclusivity for a region uh-huh. knowing that we're going to exit the business. So when we exit the business, the reason that we got a higher multiple than the average, one, we had a lot of the things that you talked about because of my experience I'd put in, but one of the most important things is the vendor contract was exclusive. That got us a yeah. lot more. So yeah, they're the things that you think about when you're you know, at the start of the business, planning the exit. But now back to you, because I know we've got, you know, we're, we're about, well, we could listen to you all day, right? But I also want to make sure that people go and get your book, which will tell them at the end where to get it. But The last two Ps are very quick. 
Cool. Five and six, far away. Patrons. Patrons is your customer base. You need customer diversification, not customer concentration. A lot of businesses in the United States follow the 80 rule, 80-20 rule. 80% of their revenue comes from 20% of their clients and they lose a few clients that could be literally out of business. So you need customer diversification. The last P is profits. That's the P that all of us are excited about. <laughs> but profits, <laughs> profits is never the problem. Never. I have clients that come to me all the time and say, Michelle, I have a profit problem. I'm like, no, you have a people problem. <laughs> you have the wrong people in the wrong seat. Or you have a process problem. You've alienated so many clients that you're losing your patrons. Or you have an IP problem. You're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to protect your proprietary. Profits is never the problem. It's always a symptom. Yeah. Yes. Got to so figure out what's wrong with the other five Ps. And before you said multiples, so I'm, you know, most people would have heard of the term, but may not fully understand what it is just you know what is a multiple and what's the common denominator i suppose that's used sure so i don't know about australia so i can only talk usa but and, and it depends if the business is under a million dollars in ebitda ebitda is earnings before interest taxes depreciation amortization if it's under a million dollars in ebitda the multiple can be it depends upon the industry the multiple can be anywhere from one and a half to four you know probably not gonna get much over four if you're over a million in EBITDA, now here's the sweet spot. If you're over a million dollars in EBITDA and you've got some of these synergies, the multiple is five and up. So it's typically can be five to six, five to seven. However, if you're like right now we're selling company that's $12 million in EBITDA and they have a lot of synergies, we're at a pretty high multiple. We're at, I want to say we're at a, 12, 13, 14 multiple. We have a SaaS company. We're at a 23 multiple. So it really depends. And at the end of the day, though, you know, evaluations are an art rather than a science. And at the end of the day, you're going to have a price, Paul. I'm going to have a price. But it's a buyer who decides what the value is to them. So we go to market without a price because we're going to probably create a bidding war. And when we get businesses over a million dollars in EBITDA, we know we're going to have hundreds of buyers because there's more buyers for good businesses than there are good businesses to buy. Absolutely brilliant. So that's gold. So now I'm a little bit anxious to ask this question because I know we're a little bit tight on time, but the you talked to the GPSX method. Is that just give us a quick summary of that right. one? You know that by now I don't do anything quick. <laughs> I'm so detailed. I'm so detailed, but um, which is so much a, value for everyone watching this. It's it's brilliant, but uh, yeah, the GPS X model. So it's called the STGPS exit model. So the biggest reason that business, so in the United States, eight out of ten companies don't sell. That's according to Steve Forbes. That's eighty percent of businesses will not sell, and the number one reason they don't sell is because business owners never plan their exit. They don't think about selling until a catastrophic event has occurred. You know, whether it's internal or external, like partner disputes, divorce, death, health issues, or COVID. That's the worst time to sell your business because your business is not doing well. So I tell all of my clients from the beginning, follow the GPS exit model and have a plan. Most business owners never have a plan. Number one, what do you do when you want to drive somewhere? You pull out your phone, right? You pull out your phone, you plug in your destination, where you want to drive to. Business owners, you need to know where you're driving. <laughs> you need to know where you're driving your business to. Stop going around in circles and stop driving up and down the financial hills. Figure it out. Determine your end game. Determine what you want to sell your business for. So if you say, I want to sell my business for $20 million, great. 
There's a start. We have a number. <laughs> now you need to know where you're starting from. What's your current location? What meaning? What is your valuation? Now in the USA, as humans, we go to the doctor. We get an annual checkup once a year to make sure we're okay. We drive our car to the shop to make sure we get a checkup and tune up on our car, but we never get an annual valuation checkup. How is that? <laughs> like I just met with a business owner who's been in business for 50 years. He's never had his business evaluated. That's insane. You should get a business valuation checkup every year because there's events that can increase your valuation and events that can decrease your valuation, right? So you need to know every year where you are. And who's so, best to get that from, Michelle? Best is to get, to get it from an experienced mergers and acquisitions advisor, yep. not a CPA. Yes. Not a CPA. Yeah. A mergers and acquisitions advisor. And then, so let's say you want to sell for $20 million, but you're worth $5 million. Great. We have a start of a plan. <laughs> and then you need to reverse engineer it. And let's say now you got to come up with time frame. Everything has to have a time frame. So let's say we want to do that in 10 years. We want to sell for $20 million. We're currently worth $15 million. And we want to do this in 10 years. Now, what do you need to know? Well, who's my buyer is going to be? Buyers, not buyer. If you have one buyer, because all sellers always come to me and say, Michelle, can you exclude this one buyer? I'm like, yeah, because they'll never buy. Because <laughs> I know that's never going to come to fruition. <laughs> sellers always think that one buyer is going to buy their business and it hardly ever happens. So now you need to know who your buyers. See, here's the deal. We never stop marketing because we know deals fall apart. So we always want backup buyers. So there's five types of buyers. If you want to sell for $20 million, who are your five types of buyers? Well, who's not going to be your buyer is a first-time buyer. 90% of buyers are first-time buyers. They can't afford a $20 million company. And then turnaround specialists buy distressed assets. They're not going to buy you. So it's going to be a private equity group, or it's going to be a strategic slash competitor, or it's going to be a sophisticated slash entrepreneurial buyer. Then you need to know, well, what's the financials need to look like? What's the gross revenue need to be? Where's the EBITDA need to be to, to get a $20 million valuation? Well, your EBITDA needs to be around $3 million to $4 million, unless you have a lot of synergies that will make up for deficient EBITDA. Okay, so 3 to $4 million. Then you need to know what synergies are these buyers looking for? What characteristics? And then that's where the six feeds come in. But we know our buyers. So we know if this buyer buys this manufacturing company, this manufacturing company has a distribution center, but the buyer has distribution centers all around the United States. They can cut that one distribution company, cutting cost, doubling EBITDA before they even open the ink dries. Am I making sense? Yeah. So we look at the economies of scale. We look at how that strategic buyer can cut cost, how they can increase EBITDA. We look at all that. And that's how we're able to create a bidding war. And that's how we're able to sell clients' businesses for more. Brilliant. Well, look, uh, as I said, I could ask you many, many more questions. We might even have to have you on again because this has been so great. We've not finished yet, but before we go into the live section, I'd like to talk about my free live training that's coming up on the 17th of February, 2021, 2 p.m. EST time. So what it's really for is service-based business owners that have got two key things in their business. And I know Michelle's covered a lot of it. One is that they're the only person doing the sales. And the second is their key source. They've only really got one source of leads, which is referrals. So what we do is we'll cover how you get rid of 50% of the manual work and sales. How do you get sales on LinkedIn like clockwork? And the third thing is how do you get one-to-many sales partners, channel partners. So just go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward 
slash sales and register now. So the next section is the live section, Michelle, and we're going to go a little bit more into what your daily habits are. So tell us, what are some of the habits that help you be extremely successful? So first and foremost is giving gratitude. I try to give gratitude before my feet hit the floor, but I get up at 4.45 a.m., so that's not always easy. (laughs) But the first thing is like giving gratitude, thanking God for what I'm grateful for and, you know, all the blessings in my life. I do get up at 4.45 every single morning. I do work out (laughs) for about an hour to listen to Joyce Myers, who I adore while I'm working out. And, you know, I look at the successes I've had and then I look at what results I wanted to generate that day. Those are my daily habits. And then I also, with my daughter, so I always listen to, I never listen to the radio. Everybody always asks me, what's your favorite song? Who's your favorite artist? I don't know. (laughs) I like Bob Proctor. And they're like, he's not a musician. (laughs) (laughs) I like Tony Robbins. I like Jack Canfield. (laughs) They're not musicians. So, you know, I always listen and feed my mind with, you know, Bob Proctor for the day or Jack Canfield or something like that. And then my 10-year-old daughter who I take to school every morning, I make her listen to it too. She's like, mommy, can we put on music? I go, this is our music. <laughs> this is our music. This is our world. So, and then I, my other daily habits is affirmations. Like I always have her, you know, have affirmations. I am brilliant. I am blessed. You know, I am loved and stuff like that. So those are some of my daily rituals. Well, the next section is the give section. So what's a charity or a community that you're passionate about and why? Well, one of the biggest charities I'm passionate about is Make-A-Wish Foundation because I know the founder and unfortunately he just passed away and he's a very good friend of mine and he's the founder of Make-A-Wish Foundation. There's a movie after him about his life story that you should watch called Wish Man. And, you know, somebody asked him, what is your wish, Frank? Because he granted so many children's wishes. And he said, I would just like a movie made. So fortunately, he got the movie made before he passed away. And I walked the red carpet with him. And I got to watch the movie sitting right next to him at the Hollywood premiere in California. So I would say that foundation is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, well, that's, a, that's an amazing story. So the, the last section's the rapid fire session. Now, this is a little different, Michelle. We actually do want short responses. What I'll, what we say here in Australia is, you know, less than a sip of beer, right? So let's see if we can tear through these. So the first one is what are your top three personal effectiveness tips? Number one is results. Know what I want my results and my team's results to be for that day. Also, recognition. I typically start off my day with recognition, recognizing, you know, everybody's success. And I would say probably lists, like we manage by lists. We make sure that nothing's falling through the cracks because since we sell companies, you know, a lot of things can fall through the cracks. So we also manage everything by list. Great. And what's a piece of technology that is essential to running your business? Yeah. So technology, we have a CRM that we use. And it was actually designed by an M&A advisor out of Canada. But the CRM that we use, we couldn't, probably couldn't live without the CRM. Great. So it it's does in, everything. Yeah. So it's industry specific. Yes. Yeah. Great. And, you know, you talked about the fact that you listen to Bob and Bob Proctor and Tony, <laughs> et cetera. So what else is some great source of new ideas for you other than listening to those people? And Joyce Myers. <laughs> 
You know, I have some really good friends like Jeff Hoffman. I'm such a sponge. So wherever I go, when I speak on stages, I'm also an attendee. So wherever I go, I learn stuff. Even if I just pick up one thing that I didn't know, to me, that's worth it. You know, that's extremely valuable. And, you know, I just try to look for, I don't look for problems, but I look for the way things can be done better. Yeah, brilliant. Well said. To come up with those solutions. And the last question is the big question. I always leave it to the end for that reason. But what impact do you want to leave on the world? So my big impact is I want to try to help save one business at a time. You know, even before COVID, small businesses have been dropping like flies in the United States. It used to be that 85 to 95% of businesses were out of business. And that was for startups. Now, out of 27.6 million companies, 70% of businesses that have been in business 10 years or longer are going out of business. And that was before COVID. So my impact is I want to try to save one business at a time and help save the U.S. economy. Great. Excellent. Well, look, Michelle. And then I'll go to Australia and save your economy. But your economy is <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, uh, you know, probably the stats are similar here, you know. Small business is the backbone of our country as well. And and I think, you know, certainly from a government point of view, like, you know, I help clients all around the world, mainly in North America, and I do it from my home, but it's all digital. It's around the world. And I think, I don't think the government here, don't know what it's like in the US, but the government here doesn't recognize businesses like this enough. They don't support businesses like this, where there's some countries like Sweden, Germany, where they'll actually set you up, they'll support you. So if you want to migrate from corporate into running your own business and do it globally, because they, they're smart to know that, yes, you'll live in Germany, as an example, but you'll earn income around the world that mm-hmm. comes back in. I think that's what governments are going to get smarter at. Bricks and mortar businesses, yes, they'll always exist, but they've got to turn to the new economy as well. And, yeah, Australia, we're so reliant upon iron ore that's in China, which is you yeah. talked about diversity. We've got one product, one customer. Very, very risky. So I think that's, right. that's my wish is that uh, anyone, the Prime Minister, if you're listening, pull your finger out. So uh, <laughs> pull your finger out. where can we find out more about Michelle? So like she sure. said, she's got the book, which so, actually, well, you tell them. So the book hasn't launched out yet. However, we are in the middle of pre-sales. And so you can buy it on Amazon. But if you want to read it right away, then I suggest you buy it exitrichbook.com. Also less expensive than Amazon. So for $24.79, well, we will email you the book immediately. Plus we'll ship the hardcover to your doorstep to anyone in the USA. Outside the USA, we'll have to send you the Kindle version. And then you will also receive a lifetime membership in the Exit Rich Book Club. That is filled, packed with jam-packed with video content, me going into these deep strategies and techniques and things that I teach, plus documents. You know, a lot of business owners are like, Michelle, I've never seen an organizational chart or an employee handbook or non-compete. Our business owners are like, I want to sell, but I don't even know what an LOI looks like, a letter of intent or a purchase agreement, due diligence checklist or closing docs. All of those documents are there for your review and your download. These documents will cost you over $25,000 in the United States if you went to your attorney to prepare. So not only are you getting the book, Exit Rich, it has all this huge value. By the way, my co-author for Exit Rich is Sharon Lecter, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki. She's a five-time New York Times bestselling author, and she's written several books in the Think and Grow Rich Napoleon Hill Foundation. And she's a CPA and financial literacy expert. You will also receive a 30-day membership into Club CEOs, which is a like-minded organization that I started. It's an online mastermind where we do Q&As and hot seats and things of that nature. And that's all at ExitRichBook.com. And I'm so glad that you said it rather than me. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and then if all of your listeners want to follow me and all my social media and, and my other websites, they can text Michelle to 888-526-5750. Brilliant. Well, look, you're just a, a bundle of joy and wisdom. So it's Thank not you. both of those combined, but you've got them in spades. So so wonderful having you on the show today and uh, have a Thank great you. day. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it. Bye. It's my pleasure. Bye. Thank you. I absolutely loved that interview. She made my job so easy because she was so articulate and she gave value. So often a guest comes in and you can't just take notes and walk away with enormous value. And that's what you got out of this episode with Michelle. It was absolute one of my favorites and I hope it was for you as well. So all the detail are in the show notes. As I've said, it's fully transcribed. So please go and refer to those. Love to know your takeaways, and so would Michelle. So why don't you grab a photo of her book? So it's exitrichbook.com. Why don't you take a photo and share it and actually give her gratitude because I know that's a thing that she gives to everybody else. So once again, you can get the digital book at exitrichbook.com. I think I said Exit Rich in the interview. It's actually exitrichbook.com. And also, if you'd like to build that sales machine, so the sales system outside of you being the only salesperson and also you just relying on referrals, as Michelle said, two very risky strategies you need to diversify, just go to paulhigginsmentoring.com forward slash sales. Please take action to build, live, and give. Thanks for listening to the Build, Live, Give podcast. If you like what you heard, please share it and leave us a review. It would mean the world to us.